Biden saying China. 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 Bullshit is everywhere. China. China. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. China. Let me ask you about China. I go to China. China, 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 people from China, they love me. China, 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 Welcome back to Bullshit Filter, uh, China episode 3.1. Mm-hmm. 3.3, fucking sorry. 3.3 this is. 3.3, uh, what? Sorry, China, no. Uh, China, Sounds this good. is China, China. Epi- China episode three. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sober. That's my excuse. What is it? What is it? Tell me. Well, you, you know what? The problem yeah. is... Right. That. Yes. Hour three. That's the problem. <laughs> I concur, Doctor. Oh, my God. Yeah. Hour three. <laughs> I, I, I applaud you, sir. Do you love me? It's a good kisser, by the way. Uh, we're going to be talking a bit about the detail of the trade deficit and the trade war on this episode. Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about... China and communism and that kind of stuff. I want to get into some details. But as I said at the end of the last episode, the real cause of the trade deficit is capitalism. American Mm -hmm. industrialists, manufacturers over the last 40 years have offshored as much of their manufacturing as possible to China in order to increase short-term profits Regardless right. of the long-term consequences, and and that's what has led to the trade deficit. Now, mm. again, I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. Just is. There are different views on that. Some right. some of which we'll touch on. But if you want to point the finger, China's not responsible for the trade deficit. American manufacturers are responsible for the deficit, and American administrations that have allowed them to offshore it over the last forty years, offshore their manufacturing. Now. As people who listen to our Cold War show know, uh, uh, trade unions in the United States became much stronger after the New Deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were uh, officially allowed to exist. They had uh, support from the Roosevelt administration. Uh, as a consequence of that, wages went up, employee protections went up, yeah, and U.S. companies uh, weren't happy about that. And uh, they were looking for ways to pay lower labor costs. So after Deng comes along in the late 70s and opens up China's poor and unregulated working class to American capitalists, well, the world's capitalists, quickly went, fucking great. (laughs) You mean, wait, we don't have to pay them the same sort of wages we need to pay Americans and... There's right. no unions and no regulations, so we don't have to worry about healthy working conditions and working hours and all that kind of stuff. Really? Sign oh, me fucking, up. that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So they 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 move their manufacturing. Fuck you, American workers. We don't give a shit about you. We're going to move it over to China. Jeez. And then, as a result of that, they were able to make a lot more profits by reducing their 
uh, labor costs, and they did two things with that. They were able to reduce prices in the US, and they were able to hide their profits in tax shelters in places like Panama and the British Virgin Islands, uh, as we've talked about on this here series. So you can... You can justify it, as people do often, and say, well, they had to do that because the US consumers wanted cheaper prices. And, of course, there's an element of truth in that. Everyone wants to pay as little as possible for everything. Yeah. But that's not why it happened. Right. It's not like, you know, it's not like American consumers went, well, if you don't fire, if you don't outsource all of your manufacturing to China and drop the prices and fire my, fire my husband... Right. Uh, from his manufacturing job, I'm going to go and buy my goods somewhere else, sir. Right. Uh, that's not exactly what it ha- what happened. Uh, the, these companies decided to outsource in order to lower the cost of labour because they didn't like paying for things like health care for their workers. And the other thing was that um, equally unlikely was for China to come over here with a gun and rob our manufacturing jobs and take it back to China. Obviously, that doesn't happen. We it, we had to make it happen. So that was the low end of manufacturing jobs going over to China and places like that. As far as the high end manufacturing, as the decades go by and as these companies make more money and they increase their profits and they invest in R&D and technology gets better, they start being able to automate some of the processes. So low income goes to China. High, excuse me, uh, uh, low-end jobs go to China, high-end jobs get uh, become the victims of automation and, again, like you were saying, weaker um, labor unions because the, the Christians and the conservatives and the rich all get together and they attack everything that has to do with labor unions, socialism, communism, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so it literally, it, this was not some master plan by China. America gutted its own manufacturing class, and here's Trump going, I'm going to bring all those jobs back. It's just, for a lot of different reasons, it's just not going to happen. But people love to hear that, I guess, and so they cling to that. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. God. I miss him. It's he's so funny. It's uh that's a that's a that's a regular line in our household. Not gonna do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. Chris, Chrissy and I say that to each other all the time. Oh my god. Can you give me a blowjob? Not gonna do it. <laughs> Not gonna do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. That Dana Carvey gets so much play it has that chopping broccoli. Anytime yeah. anyone mentions broccoli, it's like <laughs> Chopping broccoli comes up. Uh, church, church lady sayings, right? And why? And who made you do that? Was it Satan? <laughs> uh, it's great. I fucking love Dana Carvey, man. Yeah. Great. Now, getting back to uh, U.S. consumers wanting cheaper prices. Now, before the capitalists forced through free trade, these sorts of things weren't a problem because countries protected their own economies through tariffs and grants and other forms of protection. And the U.S. was one of the worst offenders. Today, mm. the U.S., well, before Trump started putting tr- tariffs back on everything that was coming in from uh, China and Canada and Mexico, before that, America's been pushing through free trade and right. holding it up as the pillar of human achievement <laughs> for the last 30-odd years. But mm. before that, in the early days, when the U.S. was trying to build its economy, 
It was one of the worst offenders of mm. protectionism. One of the first acts of Congress that George Washington signed right. was a tariff whose stated purpose, purpose was the encouragement and protection of manufacturers. Wow. Abraham Lincoln once declared, give us a protective tariff and we will have the greatest nation on earth. He also warned that the abandonment of the protective policy by the American government must produce want and ruin amongst our people. In the early 1900s, Teddy Roosevelt said the country has acquiesced in the wisdom of the protective tariff principle. It is exceedingly undesirable that this system should be destroyed or that there should be violent and radical changes therein. Our past experience shows that great prosperity in this country has always come under a protective tariff. So for the first couple of hundred years, America was all about tariffs. Right. All about protecting its own economy, not allowing foreign manufacturers or growers of goods to be able to export their products to the United States without having massive tariffs thrown upon yeah. them. In fact, the whole American Revolution was started over tariffs, tea, things like that, having to pay taxes yeah. and having to pay tariffs on tea. Yeah. Right, and so they were it was like, protecting yeah, their own. You know what? Yeah, yeah. So uh, America's history with tariffs goes way back. Then, at some point in the late twentieth century, American corporations decided mm-hmm. that they wanted to be able to export their manufacturer to other countries and bring it back in without tariffs so they could increase their profits. They also wanted to force other countries with developing economies after World War II to not have the uh, opportunity to protect their own economies, build their own economies through protectionism. So they're like, no, fuck that. Look, what we... (laughs) It's the old American uh, double standard baby. Like, uh, (laughs) don't look at what we did. Yes, we uh, use protectionism and slavery and genocide and straight-up theft of land uh, and colonialism to grow our economy. It was okay when we did it. Hell, it was or fashionable. when the British did it. Yeah. Uh, it was fine. But now that we are on top, yeah. those things aren't acceptable Shut anymore. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, the Dubai date for those things <laughs> has passed. The statute of limitations has passed on tariffs and protectionism until, by the way, your, we get to a point where your economy is so strong that you're kicking our ass, then we will introduce those things back in again right. to protect ourselves yeah. from you. If you ever get to a point where you're as strong as we are, then we will reintroduce tariffs because eh, really we don't have any set view on these things. It's opportunism. Yeah. Well, see, that, that's just it. I mean – just be open and honest about it. You do things like that to protect yourself. Everybody does it when the Americans were f- still developing their economy. Yeah, that you throw up some tariffs. I get that. But nowadays, everything is wrapped up. Oh, you're doing tariffs. Oh, you're you're interfering with free market as if that's almost somehow a sin. 
or crime or something like that. It's the labels they get put on other countries when there are emerging markets and they're trying to develop themselves and they need protective tariffs. But they get called evil. They get called sinful. They get called the enemy of free enterprise. They get called communists or socialists. I mean, it's when the spin comes in that it's truly disgusting. But everybody who does that or, or when we do it, like you said, when there's certain conditions in the worldwide economy, it's what everybody does. Just quit labeling it things to be convenient for you at the moment. But but you're absolutely right. America is certainly guilty of short-sightedness, certainly when it comes to the manufacturing job, just as much as any other country is. America used tariffs uh, and protectionism to protect their own industries until they were a global economic and military superpower. Then they forced boom. everyone else not to do it. Yeah, with our military and our economy. Started... It really started under the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they asked George H.W. Bush about protectionism, and he said... Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. And... <laughs> but it wasn't just them. It, they, it, you know, they came out against protectionist policies and against quotas and in favour of the... WTO and GATT policies of minimal economic barriers to global trade. Then Bill Clinton pushed through NAFTA, um, you know, uh, over vehement objections uh, of labor unions at the time Mm -hmm. uh, because they knew what it would do to America's uh, uh, manufacturing base when, when American corporations started exporting or outsourcing their manufacturing to places like Mexico, again, which had cheaper labour and less uh, uh, protectionist uh, policies for their workers. Right. Um, But US protectionism got cut to the core, but it never went completely away, by the way. The US still protects many of its industries, especially US agricultural subsidies, which haven't really decreased over the last few decades. Uh, Australia has to deal with that all of the time when we're trying to export our agricultural products to the US and it's difficult because the US uh, uh, subsidises a lot of your own agriculture. I'm sure Oscar Pierce could come on and talk to us about that. But Mm. the World Trade Organisation has forced other countries to abandon protectionism if they want to be able to trade with the rest of the world. Now, of course, Trump, a Republican wants to bring back tariffs, which is uh, kind of (laughs) topsy-turvy. Yeah. Now, I remember, because obviously it wasn't that long ago, I remember when Trump was on the campaign trail and using typical Trump language like he does, he was saying that China was pulling off one of the greatest thefts in the history of the world, that it was raping the U.S. economy, not exactly language you want to hear. And and if you pay attention to the news, I mean, this is just, uh, what, a week or so ago, he threw a tweet, hereby ordered all U.S. companies to stop doing business with China, that China was killing 100,000 Americans a year with their imported fentanyl and stealing hundreds of billions of dollars each year through intellectual property. And we, we're going to go into the tariffs and stuff like that, but... And actually, there are going to be new tariffs in a couple of days starting on September 1st. We'll go into that. But the point is, how in the hell did we get here? How did we get to this point? And that's another thing that that um, Trump is going to help us focus on because he, for whatever reason, 
and I think it's just I think it's just something that he learned through the through the seventies and eighties that he is he is fo- focused he is obsessed on trade deficit. But I I practically know nothing about economics. But I know that we have a trade deficit with one country. We have a trade surplus with other countries. In, in a lot of ways, not specific, not exactly, but it has a tendency to balance it out and the, the, the numbers fluctuate. But the point is, he is obsessed with our trade over China. And there's other things that are involved that I'm sure we'll get to, like the 5G that's coming, uh, that's going to make a huge difference in everybody's lives. But the point is, we're th- we started this trade war China has responded to it, even though they're not putting up as much uh, tariffs as we are. But the point is, this is... Um, hurting our economy even more, even though he thinks he's the one person who can stand up to China and it's and he's somehow going to bring manufacturing jobs back. I just don't know what he's thinking, but I think he sees himself being tough on China. I don't know if he's being applauded by European countries, but according to Laszlo Montgomery, to, to all the different China experts that I was listening to, America is just now starting to feel this. The farmers in the Midwest are feeling this, their number of uh, bankruptcies has gone up, and there a lot of people are saying this time next year, if nothing changes, the middle class, the people that shop at Walmart, will feel this. And we can go into all the numbers, but if something doesn't happen, it's going to get ugly for America. I'm sure it's going to get ugly for China. And I just don't see a clear-cut victory. And I'm just wondering if Trump just thinks that at some point China is going to back down. But according to all the China hands that I've been listening to on YouTube— they have pretty much decided to wait to see the next election to see if Trump is reelected or not. They're going to they're going to take their lumps. Their economy is going to shrink just like ours is. But the point is, they are literally going to wait this out because they've got a ton of money that they've been building up for the last four decades to see if they can hold on long enough until see he is hopefully voted out of office. So this is just a game of brinksmanship that just has no good side for anybody. And you just wonder how we got here in the first place. Well, that's what we're talking about, how we got here in the first place. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, a combination of the uh, Chinese Communist Party uh, figuring out how to grow their economy and Americans taking advantage, and the rest of the world, but in this case, Americans taking advantage of the cheap labour opportunities to increase profits. Now, I, I remember a time when if you got a hole in your sock or your shirt, your mum pulled out the sewing machine and yeah, fixed it. can't waste that. I actually fixed a hole in my jeans myself. I sewed a patch on my jeans last night and uh, my kids were making fun of me, going, well, what, are you, what are you doing that for? Just go buy new jeans. Because today it costs more in time and material yes. to fix your clothes. Yes often than it does to go buy a replacement from a big box retailer. Why? Because of the exploitation of poor countries. Now, I'm not saying that it's the exploitation is a, a, a net bad thing. Okay, yes, we have exploited the cheap labour in places like China to reduce the cost of our products in the West. At the mm-hmm. same time, that has helped pull 850 million people out of poverty yeah. in China. So is it uh, a, a net good thing or a net bad thing? Well, I think you could have done that and more. We could have said, okay, uh, instead of paying you $1 an hour, we will pay you $5 an hour uh, and give you, you know, uh, uh, labour protections so you mm-hmm. are only working a 40-hour week and you're looked after and you have health care and those sorts of things. Still probably could have cut our costs 
dropped our prices in the West um, and at the same time looked after the Chinese people. I don't think it has to be a binary either or here. You know, you can take advantage of that cheaper labour but not make it as cheap as possible and the process of putting the Chinese workers uh, through some form of indentured slavery. Right. You know, the, we point the finger at China for their humans rights, human rights records and then at the same time pay them as little as possible to make our shit in factories where people have the worst imaginable working conditions. Maybe we're helping pulling them out of poverty and that's the justification, uh, but we could have done more. And mm-hmm. maybe some of those trillions of dollars of, of, of offshore money sitting in Panama or the Virgin (laughs) Islands could have gone to the workers in those countries to make sure that they're not basically indentured slaves. So it's it's again we should we should avoid simplistic uh, arguments about well it's not a bad thing we pulled them out of poverty sure but we could have done that in a more humane way as well. We could have uh, we could have used our influence to say, listen, we will outsource our manufacturing to you. You make money, your people make money, we save money, it's all good. But in doing so, here's what we demand. Now, some manufacturers like Apple now are are having those conversations with manufacturers like Foxconn. They're saying, well, listen, we, we want you to assure us that the working conditions meet a certain standard, or at least they tell us that's what they're doing. Right. Very hard to know if they're legit or not. But they only do that when all of these stories start coming out about the suicide levels and people dying at their desk and not being discovered for a week and stuff like that. Um, you know, those stories start to hit the media, documentaries are made, they get embarrassed, they go, oh, no, we're having conversations. It's not like 40 years ago we had those conversations uh, because capitalism doesn't give a fuck about the people who are exploited because these companies are run by psychopaths who inherently only give a fuck about themselves. Yeah. Now, of course, the trade imbalance is more complicated than Trump makes it sound too. For a start, while the US claims the imbalance is around $400 billion a year, and what that means, if you don't understand trade imbalance, trade deficit trade imbalance, it means that America is importing $400 billion more of goods that are made in China than China Mm. is importing goods and services made in America. China says, though, the imbalance is less than that. It's only about $275, $276 billion. Their accounting mm-hmm. is different, so we should take that into account. Right. And then also the trade balance in terms of services, education, and tourism between the US and China goes the opposite way. China is in deficit there. They say to about a tune of $100 billion. Uh, so more mm. Chinese tourists go to America than vice versa, more students more services, etc. And there are some people, some economists like Milton Friedman, he's not around anymore, but when he was around, he said the <laughs> ideal position to be in as a country is one where you export less than you import. Mm. He says that's a good thing. Right. Um, and that's sh- what you should be striving for as a trade deficit, that it's not even a bad thing. He said, you know, China is sending more of their hard work and raw materials to America than America is sending back to them, and that's a good thing. He used uh, the analogy in his books and speeches of, of your own household. Imagine you're so rich mm-hmm. that you're buying, which is importing, lots of cool stuff 
Right. You're buying TVs and clothes and cars from other people and bringing them into your household, and you don't have to make much stuff. You don't have to work very hard mm-hmm. to do that because you're, you're a podcaster. You're inherently rich. All you do is sit there and record, you know, you just, you know, record three hours, don't do much of the talking each week, just let Cam do most of the work and the talking. You're importing Cam's labour from Australia. You don't have to do much. You get half the money uh, and, you, you know, you're renovating your kitchen, you're buying new cars, you're going on holidays with your family to Scotland, going to the whiskey bar once a week, you're living it up. Cam does all the hard work. You do nothing, just giggle a little bit. Go to Laszlo Montgomery to do your work for you. Uh, I tried. That's a good thing. That's a good situation. You're exporting less work than you're importing, and you can get away with that. Milton Freeman said, that's fucking great. That's what you want. (laughs) Now, so what's the problem with the trade deficit, Ray? I don't know. Is the fact that um, they're making a lot more supposedly that China is making a lot more money off of trade than we are? Is that is that the equivalent of a lot of American money flowing out of our country into their country, propping up their economy, their government? They can spend it on things, whether it's military, helping the people, whatever. Is it just literally a transfer of money? Well, yeah. I mean, they're giving you goods and services for that money, so it's not like it's going in one direction. They're giving you... You give them $500 billion of cash and they give you $500 billion of goods and services back is the theory. So it's it's an even trade. Mm -hmm. Um, I think... well, we'll get into that. What the what what the long term problem is, maybe from Trump's perspective, um, and I think really it's just he needs an enemy, and it can't be Russia because right. they co-signed his loans with Deutsche Bank allegedly. So right. it's got to be someone else, right? He's got, you got to have an enemy, and China's not invading anyone or doing any other evil shit. So all you can do is go, well, they're raping us economically. Right. And it plays to America's heartland uh, because they, you know, they they, manif- they have lost manufacturing jobs. Does, he, Trump doesn't want to turn around and blame Americans for that because that's a hard sell. So he has to yeah. blame someone. He blames China. I think it's really as easy as that. I need to blame someone for the fact that everyone's lost their jobs and the richer are getting richer and the poorer are getting poorer. Yeah. I'll blame China because if I try and blame Walmart and Americans, well, people will call me a communist. Right. Um, now, but, the, but there are some genuine long-term problems with this. So with, with having a deficit, America has lost a lot of its manufacturing capability over the last 40 years. That's a mm-hmm. fact. Now, it's, right. whether or not that's a good or a bad thing is open to debate. But the, the facts are that America's lost a lot of its manufacturing jobs anyway. might have been replaced with robots, but they've lost jobs. U.S. manufacturing employment mm-hmm. has been declining steadily. Uh, as a share of total employment anyway, from about 28% in 1960. Damn. 28% of American jobs were in manufacturing in 1960. Mm-hmm. Can you guess what it is today as a percentage of total jobs? I'm going to go with uh, 8%. Spot on. Did you guess or was that in your that, notes? No, no. Hey, I don't have any notes. You know better than that. That was a guess. <laughs> Did Laszlo give you that? No, okay. Nope. Yeah, it's gone from 28% in 1960, let's say roughly a third, 
to uh, single digits. Jesus. Now, in terms of people, manufacturing employment has fallen from 17.2 million people in December 2000 to 12.4 million people in March 2017. It's about five and a half, six million people, or about a third of manufacturing jobs in the last decade alone have disappeared in the United States. Mm -hmm. But... The United States is still the world's second largest manufacturer. Manufacturing sector in the US had a record high output in the first quarter of 2018 of $2 trillion worth. So it's employment in manufacturing is declining, but the manufacturing sector hit a record high. How does that work? I... Well, first of all, that probably has to do with productivity and efficiency and technology. But I have never, ever, ever heard that on all the news shows when they're complaining about um, manufacturing jobs being lost. I've never heard Trump say that. So we've lost all those manufacturing jobs, and yet we can still produce so much with so little. That's staggering, but that news never gets out. I guess it it doesn't help fit the narrative. And it's, you know, again... People need to understand that the why have you lost jobs? Not because of China, not because of Mexico, because of American companies that have yeah. willingly, knowingly, deliberately Gleefully. outsourced their manufacturing yeah. to these to these companies. Yes, to yeah. increase profits. Right. So it's American capitalism that has resulted in the decline of these jobs, decisions that were made. And with the cooperation of the politicians that have allowed uh, open trade to a large extent, so, okay, once you take off protectionism, Mm -hmm. uh, then these other countries can manufacture stuff cheaply and export it to your country and your own manufacturers competing in that space need to reduce the cost of production. But that's only because you remove the protectionism in the first place. So you could do that. So it's, it's the sword that cuts both ways. Um, and when you can't make your own stuff, you rely on others to make it for you. Now, in theory, this isn't necessarily a good or a bad thing. There are pros and cons. I don't make my own stuff. I don't make my own clothes. I don't make my own food. Do roast my own coffee beans, though, as go. of this week. Damn Thank right. you to Trevor Bell and Jacob Dunn, for uh, my mum, for, for showing me how to do that. I'm mm. now... Just had two and a half kilos of green coffee beans delivered yesterday that I it's going to keep me going for, <laughs> that'll get me through a week um, of coffee. Uh, but because I don't have to make my own clothes or furniture or car or mm-hmm. electricity or grow my own food, that enables me to do higher value things like podcasting. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can work less and and uh, um, get more and then give you half of it. And mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, I get to look after my family and your right. family right. through my efforts in other areas. Thank you. But when the zombie apocalypse comes, I'm fucked. Oh, oh yeah. Unless... Hard. Z- z- unless zombies like long-ass <laughs> history podcasts in which maybe, you know, I still have a chance. Or freshly but roasted But when the, when the economic... Yeah. Yeah. When the next depression comes, which is probably going to come next year, the way Trump's going, I'm fucked because I can't make my own food. I can't right. make my own clothes. 
Uh, I can't generate my own electricity. I need to rely on other people to do that, and I need to pay the money for that, and I won't have any money because the zombies don't like podcasts, so I'm fucked. Right. Cheers. So that's some of the risks of outsourcing your manufacturing capability as a country as well. When you can't make your own shit, shit that you need, you rely upon, your economy relies upon, you let other people have control of that, and when shit comes to shove... Uh, push comes to shove, <laughs> shit hits the fan. So just merge those two. There you go. Uh, you, you know, you don't have that capability anymore. So yeah. there is that risk. But in theory, all those workers that and you've either outsourced or replaced with robots mm-hmm. uh, can do higher value things, higher order things. They all become programmers and program the robots. Except we know that doesn't really it doesn't really work that way. They don't do that. They become Uber drivers, become underemployed, which brings me to unemployment figures. Now I said at some point early on that America has high unemployment. Some people might have gone, no, it doesn't. Yeah, we have low unemployment. Mm, yeah, well, yes. Uh, if if you fiddle with the numbers, you can say that. U.S. Australia does the same thing. Officially, U.S. unemployment figures mm-hmm. are rather low. They're running at about four and a half, five percent, which is relatively low and stable. But at the same time, uh, as of May 2016, the U.S. underemployment rate was running at 13.7 percent. Oh. So you had 4.7 percent yeah. unemployment, 13.7 percent underemployment. These are people that are working as Baristas part time or, or working yeah. uh, as Uber drivers uh, or, right. or freelancing stuff uh, on Fiverr.com. So that's a total of 18.5%. That's great depression levels yeah. of unemployment. Back then, we didn't have the gig economy, so it was all cl- classed as unemployment. Unemployment is basically people that are trying, to, actively trying to get more work but can't get it. Right. That's underemployment uh, and unemployment. Yeah. So that your, your unemployment is basically rate running at Great Depression levels when it was up around 20%. In surveys conducted by Pew Research in 2011, uh, 84% of Americans polled cared more about jobs than anything else, and only 23% are satisfied with the uh, level of work that they have, Jeez. level of employment they right. have. 80% are unhappy. Right. Yeah. So, um, yes. So that's one of the things that ha- has happened as a result of uh, offshoring your manufacturing capability. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about the fact that another another complexity with this um, trade deficit is most of the products made in China uh, and sold in the West are designed and marketed by Western companies who also keep most of the profit. Right. Famously, if you take Apple's products, Apple's products are designed in America, um, they're, they're marketed and sold in America. Mm-hmm. China's level of value contributed to Apple's products is actually quite low, mm. uh, the amount of money that China keeps out right. of that. That said, there was a study done by, I think, Harvard recently the last few years that said that if America, if Apple did try and bring all of its manufacturing back to the US, mm-hmm. the price of all of their products would go up by, I think it was about 40 to 50%. Oh my God. 
Oh, my God. Yeah, because over here we have different standards. We have different expectations. If someone's getting a job, they want to be paid a certain wage. There's regulations. There's insurance. There's retirement. There's there's other things. And so, yeah, if you bring the jobs over here, it's going to cost you a lot more, which is why they disappeared in the first place and went across the ocean. And they're not coming back. And it's for ve- just v- reasons exactly like that, that it's never going to happen. Economies, just like everything else, have to adapt and evolve if they want to survive. But I think Trump, when he says he wants to bring back coal, when he wants to bring back manufacturing jobs, I, I don't know if he's just stuck in the 1970s or whatever, but that's what he keeps telling people. But like you said earlier, it resonates because it reminds us of a, a greater time and maybe there will be more jobs to be had. Now, people point to this uh, fact that a lot of the products that are manufactured in China are um, designed and marketed by Western companies. Mm-hmm. And that is true, but that's... Not the end point. They're only, again, 40 years into this uh, journey of uh, opening up their economy to uh, a a mixed system that enables them to build their education and their infrastructure. Take a company like uh, Huawei. Huawei. I'm never really sure how to pronounce that, but H-U-A-W-E-I, Huawei. Right. Uh, they're a Chinese technology company. They overtook Apple in 2018 as the second largest manufacturer of smartphones in the world behind Samsung, who are Damn. number one. Right. So, you, you know, you as you would expect, Samsung being uh, Korean, by the way. So you would expect that countries like this, okay, they may start off making products designed and marketed in the West, but as they're doing that, they are developing their knowledge, developing their skills, educating their people, often at, at Western universities. A lot of Chinese kids go to university in America mm-hmm. and Australia. Right. Then they go back, yeah. take all of their knowledge with them, and start businesses, start companies, design products. So today, a lot of the stuff that they make, they may not add a lot of value to that is true, but where are they going to be 20 years from now, uh, 30 years from now, 40 years from now? Right. And I think that is what uh, a lot of American capitalists and our starting uh, and administrations are starting to worry about. Okay, yes, they've got the biggest economy, they're the biggest exporter in the world. Yes, at the moment they're still making a lot of a lot of the stuff that they make is stuff that we designed right. and we get to own and keep all the value keep of, the but, that might you know, well, that won't always be true. You're, exactly. you're being very naive if you think that's not going to be, that's not going to change in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah. So you- I think that's also like in terms of the legitimate worries about the future of the U.S. economy, that's something that there's they're thinking about. I just have to ask because I don't know much about this, but I do find it, um, exciting because, like I said, I live in the middle of nowhere. I have shitty internet, and just the idea of if five G comes, it's probably not going to come to me, but it might just help me in general. So I've been doing a little bit of investigating. Did you read much about when Trump signed the executive order on in May of this year that no businesses could work with Yahweh or however Huawei or however you say it? Uh, I've been I've been doing a little bit of uh, research on that. Yeah, Tony and I have talked a bit about that on our QAV show because the same thing's happened in Australia. Uh, the Australian oh. government banned the use of Huawei 5G technology in our network, which crippled one of our major telcos here who had planned to roll out a 5G oh, network using Huawei's technology. 
And when the government banned it, it blew that whole plan uh, out of the water because the major competitor had a deal with uh, one of the competitive, competitive telcos, which happens to be Telstra, which is our oldest and biggest uh, telco Jesus. in this country. Hey, yeah, the Huawei thing, I mean, the, the public message, the official message is, oh, well, they're going to put spying technology in right. all of our shit. Yeah. We can't have them spying on us. Uh, they'll be spying on us, taking our secrets. <laughs> As opposed um, to the FBI of course, spying on me? Or whoever? Well, the NSA. NSA. The NSA is already spying yeah. on you but that's and the world. Right. <clears throat> it's okay They're if Ameri- America's spying on the yeah. world. We don't want China spying on the world. Yeah, that would be horrible. Yeah. We've we got to stop China from spying on us. How do you know they're spying on you? Well, we're spying on them. That's, <laughs> that's how, how we, we found out. No, we yeah. sp- we spy on everyone so we know who's spying on us or might want to <laughs> spy on us. I can I can I just share something cuz I cuz I did go down a rabbit hole. I go down few rabbit holes, but I went down a rabbit hole on this whole 5G thing and and Yahweh and and the, it, it, it is a part of the trade war, a part of the antagonism towards China, if you will. So when the United States won the race for 4G, it added $100 billion to our GDP. You know, amazing stuff. And now what all the experts are saying, whoever wins the 5G race, it will add $3 million, excuse me, it will add 3 million jobs to whatever economy, and it will add $500 billion each year to the GDP. So this is obviously going to be huge. Now, China is saying they're going to have 5G in place, ready to go in 2020, next year. Pretty much everybody else is saying 2025. So imagine China having that kind of advantage for five years, an extra $500 billion to their GDP, an extra 3 million jobs. At the end of that five years, when everybody else gets it, the power base, the economic power base that China is going to be compared to where they are now. If And you also have the other thing about um, made in China 2025, where they literally want to take their currency and have it replace the dollar as the global currency. If they get 5G before everybody else and they're able to generate that kind of revenue, that becomes a very real thing. And so this little trade war, which Again, for me, it's it's both sides are hurting each other, and you're hurting the people and the economies. It's kind of stupid. There's obviously much bigger things going on than just this, but um, there's there's some think tanks out there going if neither side backs down, this trade war could become a currency war, and a currency war is it's pretty much an all out economic war when you're going after each other, and when that gets ugly, currency wars can become actual shooting wars. So. There are some people that are nervous, mostly just because Trump has got ideas and he really doesn't know what he's doing and he doesn't know when to blink and pull back because that's not his style. China is obviously thinking this thing through and they really don't know how to react to Trump because he's such a maverick. So this whole thing has just got really bad potential written all over it. And then you throw in the whole 5G factor and I'm sure other things that I don't even know about. And this trade war just makes me nervous besides just a recession next year, it could get a lot uglier than that if someone doesn't start using common sense and backing down and, and having 
fruitful dialogue with each other. And even people that support Trump are going, look, you can be tough with them. You can say whatever you want, but do it privately. Allow them to say face. And I think you were mentioning face on the last episode. It's very important to them to look like they are being treated with respect or they're being treated fair or they have an out. If you let them have face, you can get, you can go much further with them, but that's just not Trump's style. And so a lot of investors, and I think you said on this on the very first show, a lot of people are pulling their money out because they have no fucking idea what either side's going to do, and they're just going to sit on the fence, and all that money is going to come out of the various economies, which is not good for anybody. When you say winning the 5G war, mm-hmm. what, what does that mean? How do you win the 5G war? From what I got off these various YouTube videos, it's pretty much where it becomes applicable in everybody's daily lives. Like if you have 5G, there can be a doctor in California who was performing surgery via a robot in another country using 5G, and it is so fast. Now, see, and again, this this is where my lack of technology comes into play. I think the difference between 4G and 5G is that it's a little faster. That's, that's pretty much what I knew. It was like 20 times faster. I mean, it's off the charts. So a doctor can be performing surgery using a robot in another country because it's so instantaneous when it comes to all the automated cars driving and communicating with each other. That becomes possible. And it's supposed to help with businesses and communications and, and uh, stuff in space and satellites. It's supposed to be able to be a huge game changer. That is the extent of what I know, but because it's the next big thing, the the prize, the financial prize for it is so obviously tremendous, I'm not surprised that Trump shuts down Yahweh in this country and says no one's allowed to do business with them. Maybe they are spying for China, maybe they're not, but it doesn't matter because that's the kind of thing you would say when you need an excuse to shut these people down that have already taken over Apple and they might take over Samsung if someone doesn't stop them. Yeah, the whole 5G thing is interesting. I mean, my understanding is that 5G is going to be theoretically 100 times faster than 4G technology. 4G, theoretically, you can get download speeds of up to 100 megabits a second. 5G, you'll be able to get 10 gigabits so it's a hundred times faster oh than God. 4G. Yeah. Um, so if it takes you, say, uh, on 4G, if it takes you six minutes to download a two-hour movie, yeah. uh, on 5G it'll take three or four seconds <laughs> is the theory. But, I mean... <laughs> Done. Uh, <laughs> but this whole thing about, oh, they're going to use it to spy on us. Yeah. Um you know, they've been building all of our technology, all of our phones, all of our computers, all of our routers for decades. (laughs) They've probably been spying on us all along with all of that stuff. I mean, that just sounds like a bit of a bullshit. Yeah. I suspect that it's, uh, there's more economic cube, uh, qui bonos in here. Like, uh, who benefits from Huawei not being able to sell 5G technology? Who are their competitors? Yeah. Including the people that like Comcast that are running your current internet backbone that will be under threat if 5G becomes available. Um, who benefits from slowing down the rollout of 5G mm. or from uh, you know, being a competitive uh, delivery mechanism for 5G? I think those would be the play. I haven't done any research on that, but my bullshit filter tells me something's not something's yeah, not right there. Right. So the United States is China's 
largest trading partner. So as you said earlier, a reduction in trade uh, is going to hurt both countries if this trade war continues and escalates. Who it will hurt the most is a matter of debate. The US is obviously far more developed than China. The economy is older, it's stronger, uh, older in terms of this uh, like you know capitalist development mode. Uh, China's obviously been around for a long time. Um, so China's still in growth mode. So mm-hmm. one way of thinking is that America can survive a trade war longer than China. Right. But China's position as America's largest banker gives it some political leverage. Mm-hmm. Now. From time to time, China has threatened to sell part of its U.S. debt that it holds. And I want to drill down into this a little bit because it's an important thing to understand. If China was to sell a large chunk of its U.S. debt, U.S. interest rates would rise, which would slow U.S. economic growth. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I'm no economist, but here's how that would work as I understand it. Countries who need to trade with the United States, Mm -hmm. which is everyone, um, needs U.S. dollars because you can only buy U.S. products from the U.S. with U.S. dollars. So countries and foreign institutions normally sit on huge reserves of U.S. dollars. They're they're U.S. reserves. Um, So when they need to buy stuff, they, they have the money available. Now, it's not like cash and pallets, it's digital, but it's still US money that you hold. And it also hedges against a drop in their own currency. If their own currency, if the exchange rate drops, they, they've got all these US reserves that they've already bought that they can spend until their own currency improves. Otherwise, if your exchange rate um, is, is lower, like if the Aussie dollar drops from 70 cents down to 65 cents and you need to buy US dollars to buy US products, um, the, the, the cost of buying those US dollars, you buy money on the market like you buy anything else on the market, it costs us more to buy US dollars if our exchange rate is low. Mm-hmm. Um, now, since Bretton Woods, the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, which we covered on the Cold War podcast, the, the USD has been the standard unit of currency in international markets for commodities like gold and petroleum, um, which is why it's known as the petrodollar, and many other things. Uh, before that, it was the pound, sterling, but uh, after Britain was right. crushed yeah. during World War II, along with the economies of pretty much the rest of the world, and, and as I said in the first episode in this series, the U.S. had 80% of the world's gold reserves Miss at the end days. of World War II. The U.S. dollar became the standard unit of currency. Now, fun fact, most American banknotes are actually held outside of the United States. Really? I guess so many countries have them that the majority really? of them are outside? That's right. Wow, okay. Trillions and trillions of them outside of the United States. Now... Economists like Milton Freeman argue that overseas demand for US dollars allows the United States to maintain trade deficits without causing the value of the currency to depreciate. Mm -hmm. The US can keep printing money and foreign nations and and foreign institutions will keep buying it so the value of the dollar remains high because it's the international standard. 
if, as you suggested before, the international standard currency was to become the Chinese yuan, right. then the US wouldn't be able to run these massive trade deficits successfully. Oh. So this is another issue nice. that's playing on this whole trade war thing. The bigger and more successful the Chinese economy gets, and it's achieved that because of American capitalism exporting their offshore uh, workers, the, if China can get to the point where it makes its currency the standard currency, it's going to cause America a lot of problems right. in the way that it's managed its economy for the last 40, 50 years. And how do you think we would respond to that? Well, that's, a, that's another story. <laughs> okay. Just let's just for, for now, just say America does not want that to happen. Right. It will completely right. fuck the US economy if yes. China's currency becomes the standard because it's, it's more reliable than the US. Right. I don't think that's, that's going to happen in the near term, but it, it's feasible within the next few decades. Now, another impact of the value of the dollar being high is... It means imports are cheap for Americans because they uh, value the, their dollar higher than other currencies or the value of their dollar is higher. It's also why travel is cheap for Americans, as you well know. Right. Right? You can, yeah. You can go to other countries and it's cheaper for you than it is for me to travel because right. your dollar is worth more than my dollars are. Yeah, I make it rain, bitch. Sorry. Yeah, sure. <laughs> now, this this uh, being the standard currency for international trade is what's the French Minister of Finance in the 1960s referred to as an exorbitant privilege. <laughs> and it enables the US to levy what's called seniorage right. on all countries. Seniorage is when a government makes a profit by issuing its own currency. You think about this, so... It costs the United States a couple of cents to print a new $100 bill. Right. But other countries who want to get a US $100 bill need to provide real goods and services, $100 worth of goods and services in exchange for that $100. Yes. So the US makes a massive profit out of being able to print its own currency. Ah, gotcha. So we need to stay number one. We need to keep having the global... Money. Or, yeah, like you said, we're going to be fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, foreign nations and institutions get U.S. dollars, uh, both from buying them on the market, but also from trade. When I, you know, uh, when I sell my podcasts to American audiences, Mm -hmm. they give me back American dollars. I then have American dollars to spend. Okay, so you yeah. get it from trade. You you get it from buying them on the market. If I'm going to travel to America and I need more U.S. dollars, I go and I have to buy them, and that's the same way countries and and, and uh, other institutions, corporations do. You go and buy them on the market. You pay the market price for it, and you have to pay the exchange rate, uh, and there's fees involved and all of that kind of stuff. Everyone right. knows how that works if you've ever done any travel. Now, China currently has the world's largest stash of foreign exchange reserves, more than $3 trillion of foreign exchange reserves they're sitting on because they've been a net exporter 
to the world since the 90s and to the US since the 90s. So America buys stuff from China with US dollars. And so they give all of these US dollars to China. What does China do with all of their US dollars, Ray? I'm imagining they buy treasury bills. Yes, they invest it back into American treasury bonds. Ah. So China is now the largest holder of U.S. Treasury bonds. Now, Ray, uh, no one knows more about uh, (laughs) macroeconomics than you, so could you explain to us what a U.S. Treasury bond is? No, but I can fake it. I guess you buy a Treasury bond. It's good for a certain amount of time, and the American government takes that money and spends it or uses it, but that's the extent of my Yes. Okay, so again, I'm no expert, but this is how I think it all works. A bond is like a loan from a government. Mm-hmm. Government sells a bond. It's basically an IOU. Let's say it's for 100 bucks. They yeah. say, buy this $100 IOU from me, and I'll pay you that money back in five years plus 3% interest. Mm-hmm. So it's basically a loan. Right. Um, that well, they're they're, ta- they're you're loaning your money to the government, mm, right? Right, right. You're saying or whoever buys here's a hundred. You right. get here's a hundred dollars. You give me a piece of paper, and that piece of paper says that you'll pay me back that hundred dollars with interest. Right. And bonds are tradable on the market. So let's say I I buy a hundred dollar U.S. Treasury bond that accrues three percent interest per annum. Wow. Theoretically, and it, and they're going to pay it back in five years. The term of the bond is five years. Theoretically, that bond today is worth one hundred and fifteen dollars. Okay, because it's worth the hundred dollars plus three percent uh, a year, which is three dollars a year over five years. It's fifteen dollars, so it's worth one hundred and fifteen dollars. Okay. Um, but if China were to sell their five-year $100 bonds for, say, $100, huh. like we don't care about the interest. We'll just right. dump, we'll dump the bonds for $100. Right. right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. People are going to buy them because they're going to pay $100 and get $115 back. Right. It's a good deal because yeah. the U.S. government still has to pay the interest on whoever the bearer of the bond is. But that makes it hard for the U.S. Treasury to sell new bonds on the market because it's easy, it's it's cheaper for people to buy them from China oh, than it is to buy them from the U.S. Gotcha. Okay. So to raise new cash on the market, it makes it harder. So the U.S. Treasury would then need to increase the interest rates right. on these bonds to make them attractive to people. So if if the U.S. Treasury has, raises its interest rates to make it attractive for people to buy their bonds, mm-hmm. then other people that are trying to raise money need to lift their interest rates as well to be competitive. Ah, so interest rates, interest rates go up, which means these companies are paying out more money, they have to charge more interest. If you're a bank... Uh, you and you need to put your interest rates up then because you need to be staying competitive. So basically, interest rates go up and it slows down the economy. Just, just a quick question. Um, for me, when I read that uh, China has one point three trillion, if I remember correctly, as far as T bills, um, isn't that the same 
in a very general sense. Isn't that the same as almost using a nuclear weapon? If they were to sell off a chunk of that, then obviously our country, our economy is fucked. The American economy tanks or it gets more conservative. We tighten up. We don't buy as much. We're trying to save money. Maybe there's uh, unemployment goes up. And so we don't buy as many products that comes from China. Aren't they hurting themselves as well? And I know that's probably an oversimplification, but but I almost feel like it's if they do that to hurt us, the hurting themselves, mutual destruction, it's not going to happen. Or maybe it's just the idea that they owe own so much debt that they have that kind of that sword hanging over our head. The idea of it versus actually doing something with it. Yeah, that's true. It, it would hurt them as well, which is why a lot of people say... Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. <laughs> yes, so it hurts them in a number of ways. If they were to dump treasury bonds, it's going to uh, do a couple of things. It's going to slow down the US economy, which is going to mean that people are going to import less stuff from China, which is going to slow down their economy. Also, the bills that they still have are less valuable oh. now because they've, you know short sold the bonds on that they did on the market so that means that the money that they have is worse the bonds that they have are worse less than the ones that they had earlier all that kind of stuff gotcha. yeah so it, it does have an effect but they can do it the question is who can withstand that the longest right. uh, if you know let's say trump's chances of being re-elected in 2020 are a lot lower if the US economy crashes before then. Xi Jinping goes, Donald, my old friend, <laughs> let me tell you something. I can crash your economy. I can crash both of our economies. Right. I will still be president in 2020. <laughs> you, on the other hand. You, on the other hand, will not be. Now, Trump goes, well, I don't care. I'll still be rich. Trump does. That's one of the secrets of Trump's success. Right. He doesn't give a fuck. He can say whatever he wants. Do whatever he wants. Doesn't matter. If, if he loses the election, he doesn't give a shit. He just goes back to playing golf. Yeah. Right? Doesn't matter, really. That's scary. Um, but, yeah. but for everyone else in America, and particularly all the other Republicans, does matter. Right. Um, they, and, and, their, and, their, and their owners, the big corporations, does matter if she crashes the US economy. Yeah, Chinese might hurt, but she, if I'm she, I'm like, hey, we've been broke for a thousand years, motherfucker. Uh, we don't give a shit. We can, we, we're, used to, we're used to being in poverty. How yeah. are you going to handle it? We're, right. used, we're, we're, we're used to it. And by the way, <laughs> we're patient. Yes. Yes. Very they fucking are. patient. Yeah. Yeah. Give away Hong Kong for a so hundred years. So no I can, we yeah. can, I'll go back to my people and say, hey, listen, um, fuck America and Trump and his tariffs. We're gonna we're gonna crash their economy. Is it gonna hurt us for a few years? Yeah, it is. But yeah. suck it up, Buttercup. What are you gonna do about it? Um, we've got an author authoritarian government. Uh, remember Tiananmen Square? Yeah. We can do that again tomorrow. Roll yeah. the tanks out. So just uh, suck it up. It's it'll be good. Trust me. Uh, we've got you this far. We'll you uh, we're gonna crash the U.S. economy for the five years. Um, teach them a lesson. Um, so you know. So people say, well, they wouldn't do it, but I'm like, yeah, I'm not so sure. If I was she, again, most powerful man in the on the planet right now, I think it's doable. Yeah. 
Anyway, I, w- I want to wrap up. I want to still talk about bonds and then we'll wrap this up and we'll have to do the rest in the next episode. Why do governments sell bonds in the first place, right? If they can just print money, why don't they just print money if they need more money? Oh, I really don't know. Um... So here's how I understand it. <clears throat> it's about inflation and supply and demand. Let's, let, let me give you this example. Let's say you live in a town of 10 people. All right. And I give everyone in that town the same amount of money. I'm the boss of the town. Yeah. I give everyone $1,000 a month to spend on goods. Nice. Now, the people at your local store who sell cigars mm. will base the prices of their cigars on the amount of money they think they can get for them. They're like, okay, well, right. there's 10 people. They've all got 1000 bucks. They're buying food. They're buying booze. They're buying you know, uh, porn uh, and, and, and lube, uh, butt plugs. So they, I reckon they've got, they're going to save 10% of their income for cigars and they're going to smoke a cigar a day. So they, they, they work it out. They figure yeah. out what the market price is for cigars. Right. Let's say they make their cigars $5 each, okay? okay. All right. He, he's going to, that's, that's what he thinks the elast, price elasticity is, top of it for his cigars. He can sell them for 5 bucks each. But then one day I come along and I give half of the people in your town $20,000 a month. The other Whoa. half still get one thousand. The rest get twenty thousand because, you know, they do more work than you do. So right. I like them more, and I sure. give them more money. One day you go back to your cigar guy and you say one cigar, please, and he says uh, it's twenty bucks. And you go, whoa, what? <laughs> what? It was uh, five bucks last week. He goes, well, that was last week, bitch. Yeah. Now there's a bunch of rich guys in town. They come in. They're willing to pay more. So I've put up the price of cigars. And they're, they're willing to pay it. You're not. That's not my problem. Right. You go, well, hold on a second. That's inflation. He goes, I don't give a shit. I'm, I'm, I want to make it. as much money as possible. But yeah. I can't smoke my cigars. I don't care. Don't care. Tell it to somebody you care. Suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> right? That's basically what happens. If, if central banks just print too much money and make it available, there's more money in circulation. Uh. And it's not even evenly distributed in a capitalist economy. So some people have more money than other people. So prices go up to reflect that, which causes inflation. Now, inflation, too much inflation is a bad thing. Wages don't go up equally right. across everyone. So people uh, uh, can't afford to buy food because the prices have gone up. Some people have got more money. Other people don't. Prices go up. Some people can't afford to buy food, can't afford to pay rent. Uh, which means uh, they they go broke, which means they can't right. buy stuff in the shops, which means the people selling the stuff have a difficult time. It's, it's difficult to so, handle. So g- governments generally try to avoid too much inflation. Mm-hmm. We've seen it places like Venezuela, uh, recent years Zimbabwe, massive inflation, economies collapse. So uh, governments try and uh, avoid inflation, Mm -hmm. which means they can't just print money. But what do they do when they have a budget deficit or a financial crisis and they need more cash in order to fund government services or bail out the economy? Well, they can do a number of things. They can sell assets, privatise the power system, the water system, the telecoms systems. They can sell off stuff. Or they can raise taxes Mm-hmm. Or they can cut costs, or they can do what America's been doing for the last ten years or so since the GFC, which is quantitative easing, will which I'll explain later. Right. Or 
typically what they've done is they've, they issue bonds. So by issuing bonds, they say to foreign governments and institutions and domestic institutions as well, corporations, um, give me your money and I'll give you this IOU and I'll pay you back your money plus interest over 5, 10, 20 years. Right. And they sell a sell a billion, $100 bonds and they, poof, they have $100 billion and they can use that to pay health care or, or, or bail out the economy. Right. right. Now, they're going to have to pay it back eventually. Yeah. That's the national debt. Yes. Uh, but that's someone else's problem. Uh, you know, we don't have to pay it back for 20 years. Uh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> of course, the way they usually end up paying it back is by loaning out more money oh, to pay back this money and going, well, that's, you know, we'll pay it back in 20 years. Don't worry about it. And that's why uh, national debt has been going through the roof um, over the last 30, 40 years. Um, it's not going to cause the same amount of inflation because the cash is going to leave the market again in five or ten years, and you're actually taking money out of the market. So corporations are taking their money, giving it to the government, which means they have less money, but they're hoping that it's a good investment. It'll come back to me eventually. So the money is coming out of the market or it's coming into the market from foreign sources. Right? Mm -hmm. You're not just printing money. People are giving you money, et cetera. Now, the U.S. government has a lot of debt, uh, under Obama's eight years, the national debt increased 100% from $10 trillion to $20 trillion. Damn. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Republicans like to say, ha, look at that. Uh, Obama doubled the debt. But, of course, a lot of that was, was a result of the global financial crisis and the bailouts which happened under the Bush right. administration. So right. Bush created the problem. Obama had to come in and solve it, and the way he solved it was by generating a lot of extra cash to bail out the economy. And the theory was, well, you know, we'll get the economy back healthy again, and then it'll create more money, and then we'll be able to tax people, mm-hmm. and we'll have the money to pay back the debt. But it didn't stop after Obama left. Uh, national debt in the U.S. has increased more than 10% since Trump took office in January of 2017. Fuck. So it, it grew by 100% over eight years with Obama. So that's what... Uh, what's 100% over eight years? What's 100 divided by eight, Ray? It's 12.5% a year under Obama. It's gone up 10% in the first two years of Trump being in office as Damn. well. So okay. less, but still going up. Right. Jet-to-DDP ratio in the U.S. is currently 110%. So you've got 100%, 110% more debt than your annual GDP. Um, now, the U.S. government debt, as you said earlier, uh, as of sort of this year, is around $22 trillion. The U.S. has the largest external debt in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Debt isn't necessarily bad. We all go into debt to, to buy a house. Right. Uh, or, or businesses go into debt to buy other businesses or to expand. Debt isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's it's what you use the debt for. If you borrow $100 and turn it into $500 and only need to pay back $150, including yeah. the interest, oh, good. that's a good thing. T- Tony Coniston tells me, you know, when, when, a sh- when um, the GFC hit... Didn't affect Australia as badly as it affected the US, right. um, but because our government did some good stuff uh, to, to get us through it. But 
and and we were exporting a shit ton of coal and iron ore to China at the time. Mm. But what Tony did uh, was t- borrow as much money as he possibly could, leveraged his house, took out a second mortgage on his house, Damn. Uh, and did all this sort of stuff when the GFC hit because stocks collapsed, Tanked. stocks yeah. were cheap, yeah. and and because he was confident enough in his ability as an investor to pick the good investments, he borrowed as much money as he possibly could and invested it in stocks when they were at their, you know, 10-year lows right. and, and then rode the market back up. Fuck. And uh, that's when he went from being just pretty rich to, you know, crazy rich. <laughs> Smart. Right. Smart motherfucker. Takes money to make money. So yeah. borrowing money isn't necessarily bad, right? It's what you do with it. Yeah. Um, now, as of June 2019, federal debt held by the public in the US was $16.17 trillion. Intragovernmental holdings were another $5.86 trillion for a total national debt of $22-odd trillion. Right. Now, China also has a lot of debt. Uh, Corporate, household, and government debt was 300% of its GDP in 2019. US is 110%. China's is 300%. But again, debt isn't necessarily bad. It's what you do with the debt that matters. And China's been using debt to finance its extreme economic growth. Yeah. In terms of external debt... There's a difference between, you know, total debt, which is government, corporate, and household combined, and external debt. China uh, is 10th in the world. That's the total debt that the public, government, and private owes to foreigners. China's 10th, America's number one in the world. But again, America can get, a, can get away with it because uh, it has yeah. the standard currency, international yeah. currency, trading currency. China's debt is external debt is well below America's and the UK, France, Germany, uh, Japan, etc. So uh, you know I, I can go into a lot more detail about uh, what this all means, but the US government has struggled to spend less than it takes in since World War II, and it hasn't really had to in many ways. As I said before, it's able to get away with this because it, it can leverage um, seniorage and uh, the, its exorbitant privilege of mm-hmm. being the global currency since the end of World War II, the standard currency. Right. It's, it's, and because of its economic and military hegemony, it's been able to keep this going. But it, you have to see it as sort of a splitting, spinning plates operation. Right. They're building, 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 assuming that they will be able to get away with this forever. But, uh, you know, now China's the world's largest economy and it's starting to look like America may not be able to keep these plates spinning forever. Yeah. And as you said before, what happens if they lose? What happens if the yuan becomes the standard international currency? Yeah. Well, America's got a lot of... It's got 800 military bases and a lot of nuclear weapons uh, in order to prevent that happening. I think... Honestly, unfortunately, sadly, that's the that's the that's yeah. the fear. Yeah. Is if it looks like they're losing the economic war, they will. I've always said uh, you know, war is an extension of economics by other means. Right. 
we have the largest army in the world, and China has two million soldiers in uniform. So, yeah, it's, again, nightmare possibilities. Yeah, they're also a nuclear power. Yeah. Now, the U.S. has been struggling to spend less than it makes since World War II, but it really spiked during the Reagan administration. They were funding wars all over the place, interventions all over the place, uh, building uh, you know, an arms race still against mm-hmm. the Soviets, whilst at the same time, at least for a while, cutting taxes. Reagan Jesus. actually put taxes up again. He, right. he came in, yeah. massively cut taxes, then the economy fell over and he started putting taxes up again. They tend to forget that uh, when they talk <laughs> about Reagan over there. Right. Um, but because the US had the world's leading economy and massive military superiority, for the last 70 years it's been able to borrow a shit ton of money because people think it's a safe investment. Yeah. That's why China invests money in US treasuries. They go, well, it's probably a safe investment. Uh, they, they will pay it back. But, you know, pretty good chance that they will pay it back. And since the OPEC crisis in the 70s, the US has given a blank check military support to the Saudis, who are the 10th largest foreign holder of US government bonds. Mm. She said China's number one, Japan's number two. The Saudis are in there as well. Um, Japan, by the way, the second holder of US debt has been conveniently under US military occupation since 1945. So uh, that helps. Uh <laughs> And now, I mentioned quantitative easing before. It's been going on for the last 10 years. This is where the U.S. central banks buy U.S. bonds. Hmm. So the U.S. Treasury issues bonds and the U.S. central bank, the Federal Reserve, buys them and makes the money available to retail and investment banks to make available to businesses and consumers who want to spend money and then boost the economy. Um, it's a weird, relatively new thing um, that uh, America's been doing, and it's a little bit incestuous. Yeah, um, it's like kissing your cousin. And, yeah. And, yeah. And we're now in a situation where interest rates are approaching zero. I was watching this Warren Buffett interview last night, and he was saying, this is never supposed to happen. Like uh, interest rates this low, no one's ever forecasted this would ever happen. And and this low for this long, right. um, the economy's in a bubble. And it's he was like, I don't know, man, it's really weird. And I think this quantitative easing has been a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the US, basically, the U.S. government issues bonds, and then the Federal Reserve, which isn't part of the government, but supposedly, I guess, is in control of the government at some level is then buying them buying the US Treasury's own bonds. Where the Federal Reserve gets the money from to do that is still a bit of a mystery to me. But basically the US is issuing creating bonds and then buying back its own bonds and giving its bonds to American businesses and consumers and assuming it's gonna it'll all work out in the wash. We'll get it we'll get that money back <laughs> at some point. Christ. Um, oh. It's like it's like me loaning money to Chrissy and then she gives the money back to me <laughs> to pay you back. and I use it to... Say, <laughs> all good? Yeah. All good, honey. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's wrap it up there. I've got more to talk about with China's economy and uh, the trade war, but this we've gone way over time with this and I don't want to go for another hour. So we'll do a fourth episode and wrap up the series then. But I hope that's helped people understand a little bit more of uh, what is going on.
So we'll be back uh, with China episode four next week or some point. If you're 13 and you're willing, I'll do it. She's getting angry. She's a whore. There we go. We can do it a lot. Just watch your mouth. Show some respect. What do you fucking want? Just tell me what you want. I think that would be the opposite of that. That's the way it will always be. That's the way it is. We can do it a lot. Bullshit. Bullshit. Oh, no. okay. Oh, <laughs> that's so sad. Really? Because Riley? Oh my God! That's how he gets off.